this Sunday and next Sunday evening, I'm speaking about humility. Now, uh, this guy, I, I always thought I recognized his name, and it only just occurred to me why I recognized his name. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, a guy called Andrew Murray. Why do you recognize that name? <laughs> you see, not it, uh, honestly, it's only just come to me. That's Andy Murray, right? Anyway, there you go. Um, there is more content to come. Anyway, Andrew Murray, not the tennis player, at the turn of the 20th century, wrote a book called Humility. And uh, I've been reading it over the last couple of weeks, and it has been uh, really, really helpful. He says this, Humility is the only soil in which the graces root. The lack of humility is the sufficient explanation of every defect and failure. Humility is not so much a grace or a virtue along with the others. It is the root of all, because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows him as God to do all. Now, um, I've been reading various different quotes to Vanessa at various stages during the week, and she always says, read that again, Steve, because um, he doesn't kind of use language in the way that I might use language. So maybe you missed some of that. Humility is the only soil in which the grace is root. In other words, it's, it's the lack or the absence of humility which explains our other weaknesses and struggles, is what his point is. And it's a great paragraph, but maybe you think he's overstating it. So let me try and uh, prove it to you briefly. Just consider with me um, for a moment the sheer weight of the topic of humility in the Bible. My concordance tells me that the word humble appears 2,341 times in the Bible. And on top of that, you can add all the condemnations of pride. You can add all the words like meek or lowly. And you can see that the, the, the topic of humility is a massive topic and theme in the Bible. So let me just track through a few passages and stories with you. I'm not going to turn to all of them. I'm not going to turn to any of them, actually. But hopefully, they'll ring a bell with you. And then we're going to uh, end in a passage, and then we're going to read it together. Uh, humility, or learning humility, is given as the reason for the wilderness journey of the people of God uh, in the book of Exodus. In other words, think about this. God thought that it was worth his people spending 40 years traveling in the wilderness in order that they might be taught humility. That's how important learning it is. In 2 Samuel 22, 26, David summarizes his experience of the Lord as him saving the humble and condemning the proud. That's how he explains it. In other words, humility is the outstanding marker of the people that God saves. It's the thing that God is looking for. It's a constant theme in the book of Kings and Chronicles as various kings refuse to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God and others, or less frequently, they do at times humble themselves before God, leading to the kind of the rise and fall of the nations as they variously recognize and refuse to recognize who they are before God. The Psalms speak of humility, or maybe better sing of humility regularly. Psalm 25 verse 9, we're told that he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Towards the end of the Old Testament, you come against the guy called Daniel, who has risen to significant power in the nation of Babylon. He's commended, but not for his status, not for his influence, not for his great achievements or even his intellect, but he is commended for his humility. Micah tells us famously that humility is what God requires from his people. And if you've ever tried to log into the church laptop, you'll know that because that's the verse in Micah that... Oh, I've just told you all the password for the <laughs> church laptop, never mind. Jumping to the New Testament, you meet Mary, who is the mother of Jesus. He was, uh, she was humble, we're told, in Luke chapter 1, verse 48. We're told 
by Jesus that everyone who exalts himself, they will be humbled. Jesus says that three times in the Gospels. In Matthew's Gospel, we're told that it's humble, childlike faith which saves. James 4 verse 6 riffs off the Old Testament and the Psalms and says again that God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. Then, maybe you want to turn to this because you've already been in 1 Peter this evening. Turn to 1 Peter 5. It's the, the, the verse before everyone's favorite verse. 1 Peter 5 verse 6. Everyone's favorite verse is verse 7. Verse 7 is casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What a lovely verse. But what does it say? Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. On top of all of that, and maybe most significantly, we're told over and over, and we saw this morning really clearly, didn't we, the humility of Christ, the word made flesh and dwelt among us, God the eternal son leaving the glories of heaven, revealing himself in what is by definition humility, stooping to death on the cross to die not for his own sin but for the sins of others, humbling himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, I'll stop there, but hopefully that's enough to persuade you that humility is massively important in the Bible. But given its significance in the Bible, uh, Andy Murray also has something else important to say about humility. Listen to what he says next in his book. He says this, the call to humility has been too little regarded in the church, uh, ignored basically, because its true nature and importance has been too little apprehended. The call to humility has been too little regarded in the church because its true nature and importance has been too little apprehended. I wonder whether you agree with that. That The problem in the church is that we do not understand what humility is, and we do not understand how important it is. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that is true of me. I I want, I hope you want this too, I want from the bottom of my heart to fight sin and to live for the Lord Jesus. But when I think about what does it look like for me to fight sin and live for the Lord in every corner of my life, which is the, the burden of my heart, I want to do that and I long to do that. And when I think about that, I think about what it might look like to slay certain kinds of sin, yeah? To slay sins of anger or self-pity or jealousy. I, I might think of, of virtues that I want to develop, like I, I want to uh, read my Bible more or or more deeply, or I want to pray more, or pray more fervently. But I don't often group those things together and say, I want to grow in humility. I, I think I, I in, a, in a kind of perverse way, I think I can be rather pleased with myself when I feel like I'm growing in the other battles with sin. Do, do, you, think, do you think like that? Oh, I'm pretty well through. I didn't lose my temper all week. Or I absolutely smashed personal Bible reading this week. But growing in humility never feels like that, does it? In fact, it feels like the very opposite of that. It is an unpleasant experience. Growing in humility feels like something's going wrong in our lives as we do it. Now, I don't don't want to take you through the ups and downs of my week, but this week has, in lots of ways, been humbling for me. I've learned this week that I am not very good at things, and I screw them up. And that kind of humbling just doesn't give you that same buzz does it but the evidence of the bible is because he's kind of getting some kind of sadistic entertainment from it but because he loves them 
and it's for their good. So being humbled is good for us as we grow in this root of graces that is so often neglected by the church. Now, generalizations aren't always true, are they? But I think this generalization is generally true, and it's quite helpful, and it's from Andy Murray, so it's good, right? So uh, here it is. He says that uh, the Bible teaches us three reasons to be humble, three reasons to be humble. Firstly, we should be humble because we're creatures. In other words, being made by someone else is by its very nature humbling, and we'll talk about that in a moment. The next thing he says is that we should be humble because we're sinners. And I think we think about that one quite a lot, don't we? We we are humbled because, like I was saying earlier, you know know that you screw things up and you make a mess and you do things wrong, sometimes deliberately, sometimes accidentally. That is humbling, isn't it? Thirdly, he says we're humble because we are recipients of grace. We, We are saved not by what we have done, but by what Christ has done for us on the cross. And and so we are humbled by that. Now, we could consider all of those three humblings together, but my plan is to take it more slowly than that and try and deal with the first one this evening, and we'll try and deal with the next two next week. So this evening, I just want us to think about what it means to be humbled as a creature. So here's the question for us this evening. What does it mean to be humble as a creature? In other words, what is it about being created outside of any sin or grace, which we know we need, what does it mean about being created that means that humility is right for us? And to think about that, I want us to look at Revelation chapter 4. So, turn to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. And I'm going to read it for us. John, the Apostle John, writes this. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there were, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Round the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." Now, keep the passage open. Let's just have a look through it uh, very quickly. 
Verse 4 tells us that there are 24 elders gathered around the throne, telling you that they're clothed in white garments and they have golden crowns on their head. Now, this is apocalyptic language, isn't it? Uh, John is describing something that you cannot draw, but he is describing it in words to explain the realities of the glories of heaven and to teach us truths. Now, exactly who those 24 elders are seated on the thrones in white robes wearing golden crowns, who they are is not amazingly clear, is it? Theologians have taken lots of guesses. Uh, 24 heavenly priests following the 24 high priests of the Old Testament, or maybe 12 Old Testament tribes plus 12 apostles, or one suggestion I came across relating to the significance of the white robes in pagan culture. Now, I don't think that last one is right, but I'm not sure which of the other ones are right. But I don't actually think that's massively important to the vision, because for the purposes of the passage, the elders are significant not because of who they are, but because of what they are doing. Yeah, do you notice that? Have a look at the, the passage again. Notice verse 8. Four living creatures. You had the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. Put your hand up if you go to Archbishop Blanche's school. Yeah? Okay. Four of you at the back. Oh, and Vanessa over here. Five. As you, as you come out of school, yeah, and you walk, there's a church building directly in front of you, yeah? On the front of that building are four carvings. What are they of? You've looked at it every day. No, you haven't really. It's a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. It's Revelation 4. Have a look at it when you come out of school next time, or if you're driving past on Earl Road. Anyway, these four living creatures, they are representatives of the four corners. Yeah, Ruth, you didn't put your hand up. You're over there. You go to Archie's. Yeah, there you go. Or you put it up too low. I'd notice. There you go. The four living creatures are the representatives of the four corners of the earth, and they are caught up in this perpetual song about the holiness of God. Holy, 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 they sing. Three times perfect, set apart, special, different. And that song of the four living creatures is then the trigger for the action of the 24 elders, who on hearing it, verse 11, they bow down before the throne of God and worship him in that song of verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And over and over again, you've got this idea of God living forever. He's the one who lives forever. He's the one who is the source of all things, the creator of all things. But notice exactly what these 24 elders, who are creatures, yeah, they are made, created by the creator God on the throne. And they are before his presence, so they are perfect, yeah? They are without sin. This is not about humble because of sin. This is humble because of uh, their status as creatures. Notice what they're doing. What does it say? Well, as they fall down before the throne, they cast their crowns before him. This is it, isn't it? Singing of the worthiness of the creator, or to put it in the language of our topic this evening, as they recognize their creatureliness, it is accompanied by the removal of their crowns. It's the word stephanos in Greek, which is where my name comes from, actually. But their, their crowns are not so much crowns of royalty. Stephanos is a, it's a crown of victory. It's an Olympic crown. It's from the success of their achievement. And what is the significance of them casting their crown? Well, it's not sort of deference, is it? It's not like you would sort of don your cap in the pub if someone more important came in. Is that what you do? kind of thing, maybe the police officer walked in or the mayor or something. It's more than that, isn't it? This is nothing less, is it, than the total removal of any sense of human victory or prowess, throwing it down before the throne of God. Why? Well, because it belongs to God. Yeah? 
This crown rightly belongs to you and not me, he says, as he throws it down. Creatures, just because they are creatures, understand that it is their creator who is the wearer of the crown, not them. Here's Andy Murray again. You're never going to be able to listen to an interview with Andy Murray without being thinking about humility, are you? Which is a good thing. Humility is not something which we bring to God or he gives to us. It is simply the sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make way for God to be all. Humility is simply acknowledging the truth of his position as creator and yielding to him. And that's what they're doing, isn't it? You are creator. I am creature. Everything that I have comes from you as a gift. I have nothing before you. I have no honor in myself except that which is given to me by you, and I give it back to you. And I think if we can say that of these 24 elders before the throne, perfect creatures throwing their crowns back when they worship, they only ever had them on loan anyway, it means that that should be us as well, doesn't it? Now, if this is maybe mixing metaphors slightly, I want us just to think about maybe three sort of practical landings of what that crown casting looks like. Okay, so I want to talk about knowledge, I want to talk about power, and I want to talk about presence. Okay, so let's talk about the, the sort of the crown of knowledge first. There's nothing better, is there, than feeling like you're in the know, yeah? If you're the person who knows something, feeling like you're in the know is incredibly empowering, isn't it? If you're the kid in class who knows the answers, that puts you in a special category, apparently. Not one I've ever been in, but I'm sure some of you are in that, right? If you know the answers, if you have knowledge, it gives you power and authority, doesn't it? People want to talk to you to get the answers from you. But as you meet the creator, as you stand before his throne, as you see him and meet him in his word, you realize that God alone is the one who knows. He is the gatherer of the all-seeing creatures from all over the world. He's the one who knows all things. All of our knowledge is, is by definition, partial and limited. It's made up of stuff that we have heard or been given. All of our conclusions about all things that we think we know are provisional. We have to recognize that everything we think we know might be wrong. We have to recognize that we are just limited, that we might never know. But God's knowledge is ultimate, isn't it? You know, we know because we're taught that the world, uh, our earth, spins around the sun. But God knows how, he knows why, he sustains it. He knows all about it. And learning this is, this is humility. Knowing how little you know. Knowing how little you will ever know. Knowing that you don't even really know your own heart. No, you don't know your future. You don't really know everything about the past. We are largely ignorant about why we are like we are. Deuteronomy 29, 29 puts it like this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. In other words, the things that we know, we know because God has given them to us. You and I only know what we need to know, and we only know it because God has told us. Knowledge. Secondly, presence. I don't know whether you love to be the center of the action. Do you love that? Do you hate missing out? There's that pizza advert which used to come on, didn't it, about, jo is it Jomo? The joy of missing out instead of fame. Has anyone seen that? No. Okay. I'm sure you have. You're just hanging me out to dry. Anyway, we want to be in the, 
What's wrong? Is it not Pizza Hut? Domino's. Oh, okay, sorry. Oh, right, yeah, Domino's. Totally different thing. <laughs> okay, we want to be in the right place at the right time, don't we? We want to be at the center of where everything is happening. But consider your creator. He is everywhere all the time, in full presence. You and I know only too well that we can only be in one place at one time, and we feel the frustration of that, especially when we try and take on too much. There's a word for that frustration, isn't there? Pride. Because humility recognizes that God is the only omnipresent one. We have feet of clay stuck in this particular place, seeing only what we partially understand. Power. Again, it's an obvious point, isn't it? But it's humbling to consider, you know, we can't actually achieve the things that we want to achieve. You know, we think we can make a difference. We think we can change things. We can push forward agendas. We can make plans. But the honest truth is, we are utterly helpless. We are blown off course by a microscopic virus, a chaotic storm. We have no idea what will happen tomorrow, no idea whether anything that we hope to achieve, we will achieve. But our creator is the maker and sustainer of all things who has never had a thwarted plan. He's not just a, a watchmaker who kind of sets the world in motion and then just sort of pushes it off and goes, okay, well, that, that can get on with it, right? And I will just sit over here and watch from a distance. No, instead, it is the power of God in each and every moment which sustains life. It's his power that is making your heart beat and your lungs breathe. It's his power that keeps your feet stuck to the ground. It keeps this roof on the building. At least it sounds like it's just about on. And it's the, the power of God that keeps words coming out of our mouths. We are utterly powerless creatures. And he is our creator, all-powerful. Now, I could go on and on, but let me just try and pull it together for a moment and finish. You and I are to be humble because we are creatures. So much so that the crowns that we have are to be thrown down before God because he owns them. What does that mean for you? Think about it for a moment. Maybe you're a, a great artist or a fantastic accountant or a top business leader or a super bright doctor. Or maybe, you know, you're just a, a good student or a fine parent. Well, those things are great gifts. They might even be glorious. They are, if you like, snippets of knowledge and power and presence that we have. They are Stephanus crowns of victory, if you like. But listen to this. They're not yours. They're given to you. By your creator. You know, whatever gifts I have are not mine. They're given to me by God, my creator. And notice this in Revelation 4. Worshipping God involves not standing on your crown. It doesn't involve presenting your crown. It doesn't involve pleading your crown. It involves throwing down your crown. You know, we have nothing other than what we were given from the one who gives all things and the one to whom all things ultimately belong. 
And as we come to worship and as we praise God our maker, we acknowledge that anything good that we have belongs to him anyway. And that's how we worship him. I wonder whether as Christians, and I'll finish with this thought, I just wonder as Christians, I've been thinking about this, as Christians I think we're probably better better at thinking about our sin and our weakness than we are about thanking God for our gifts and the good things that he's given to us. Actually, we stand before the Lord in the same way, not simply because we're all sinners, but also because we're all creatures. And anything we have has been given to us by God. All glory and praise to his name. Let me pray, and then we'll sing together. Heavenly Father, we have nothing, nothing other than what you've given to us. Any skill or wisdom, knowledge, power or presence that we have has been given to us by you, the creator and sustainer and source of all things. And as we uh, come and pray to you now and are uh, sitting before you now, we throw down our crowns before you and come as creatures acknowledging you, our creator and our God. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we know not only of your power in creation, but also your power to redeem proud sinners like us. So we thank you that the song in heaven changed to a song of not just your glory in creation, but your even greater glory in redemption that your son was slain and by his blood he ransomed people for you from every tribe and language and people and nation, making them into a kingdom and priests for you who will reign with you. And Lord, what a great, great hope that is for us. And we pray that you might help us to think and consider what it means to live humbly as your creatures in this place that you've put us. In Jesus' name, amen.